Jim. How are you today? I'm good. Um, I um, am excited to just have a little chat with you because we haven't had that for a little while since I think the first episode. I know. Well, we did a second one about norms. Oh, that's right. I forgot. And I have to tell you that these ones stress me out a little more because like who the hell wants to know what you and I think about things and I know that's okay if if it's not interesting to people they don't have to listen but I already let you know that without the structure of a guest coming on and like me being able to prep to ask them questions about their area of expertise this one feels a lot more vulnerable to me so I'm just gonna let the let the listeners know that I am in an uncomfortable place right now. Okay. All right. Well, Brené would say that's good. You've got to get in the arena. Yeah. Yeah. Rumble and fall and mess up and then get back up. Yeah. And do it again. So, okay. Well, um, we definitely need to acknowledge the fact that there has been a horrible tragedy this week in Uvalde, Texas. Yes. 21 people killed, educators, uh, kids in school uh, where it should be safe. It's horrible. I haven't been able to stop thinking about it, but a lot of people haven't been able to stop thinking. Yeah, I haven't either. And, um, you know, I that was as a principal was always my biggest fear. Like when we had to do the lockdown drills and, you know, everyone's in their classrooms and they're supposed to have the doors locked. And then <clears throat> those of us like in the office staff, we'd go around and we'd rattle the doors and pound on them and, you know, yell, let me in, let me in. And I would always go back to my office and cry when we were done mm. because it is just the most horrific thing to practice. And then, of course, undoubtedly, the most horrific thing to happen in real life. So, um, yeah, it's just not something that humans should have to experience. Yeah, and you never think it's going to happen to you, right? Even though you're doing those drills, you're always like, well, this is probably never, ever going to happen. Yeah. And in the scheme of things, school is probably still a really safe place to be, you know, in the bigger picture of it all. But I mean, even one child killed isn't yeah. too many, right? So, right. Yeah. And well, the solution is, is really complicated. I mean, who knows? There's gotta be 700 solutions to fix that problem. And just making one at a time would be helpful, but how it's politicized in the debate is just monumentous and such distraction so see this is where I get kind of curious because where our whole podcast is about the middle ground right the messiness in the middle yes and no Mm -hmm. but um I don't really feel like there's a polarity here that can even be considered I mean there is a polarity but it's not in my mind is it really that hard to solve this problem? Like there just needs to be, there need to be more controls on guns. People shouldn't be able to just walk in and get a gun immediately. Right. I heard somebody say something like it shouldn't be, I think it was Samantha B I was listening to talking about, it shouldn't be easier to get 
guns than it is baby formula. Right. Something's really messed up in this country. And you look around to other countries who have been able to figure out this problem. They don't have this problem. Yeah, that and that I think is the most compelling argument, right? Because when we just look at it isolated with our nation, then it seems more complicated because we have all these polarities. But when we do see other countries that, that I don't know, we might consider our peers or our equals in development and all of that, and they just like quickly made decisions. So I, that's where I feel like, wow, something could be done because other countries have done it. And I want to do something like I want to act because everybody's been like, we must act like this has to be different. It has to be different, but I don't know what to do because I don't really, the polarities are so pronounced around this issue that I don't really feel like calling my legislator or my Senator. Right. Difference. Well, and yeah. And that's how I felt like when, you know, George Floyd was killed in the black lives matters movement was kind of reignited. I, I believed that me contributing financially to organizations that advocate for equality and, and protection and reform and all of that. um, I believed in that. And so I did Um, every time I finished a puzzle, which I don't, do you know that I'm an avid puzzler? Oh, I didn't know. I mean, I think I, I knew, are you still, you're still doing puzzles? Oh, I I love them. I think you were, I knew you were doing it during the pandemic, but I didn't know you'd continued. I yes, tried to do I, one puzzle, one puzzle when I lived in uh, Panguitch. Yeah. And like, you know, my dad lives with me. And so he was a little like, when are you going to get this off the table? <laughs> <laughs> you got to have a puzzle table because it can't disrupt the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so every time I finished a puzzle, I contributed money to an advocacy group for um, BIPOC folks and equality and equity and all of that. But this one, I don't, there was one organization I found, I can't even think of what it's called, somethingtown.org. Hmm. I can't even think of it um, that I contributed to. But other than that, I don't know how to quote unquote act, right? right. This feels really out of my control and out of my element. Like, I don't want to talk about the Second Amendment. You know, I hunting is not in my family. Like none of that. I don't even know that world. And I try, so not to get into the polarity, I try to understand what they're talking about. But again, I think no one's talking about taking all the guns away. We're just talking about how can, how can you have to wait till you're 21 to get a beer, but you can go buy an assault rifle at 18. Right. And then, you know, the whole, let's put, give teachers guns to me. Nice. That's, that's a big a big debate now, especially here in Utah. And I think that is the dumbest idea I've ever heard in my entire life. I mean, I remember there was a teacher that shot herself in the foot using the restroom. I don't know when that was or where that was exactly, but it was several years back. And it's just like, do we really, I mean, we really need to focus on improving quality of instruction in the classroom. We don't need to worry about you know, add one more thing on top of just plates in terms of carrying a weapon. Yeah. But there are probably teachers who support that. And I'm curious, I would be curious to hear their thoughts, but I would just be worried. I would be too. Yeah, I'd be worried that you would 
you know, contribute to the problem if you were trying to save kids' lives. Right. I mean, I just don't understand how putting more guns into the building is a solution. Because right. in all, in these cases, I know the one this year, um, like there is a school resource officer in the building. So we have people with guns mm. in these schools and, and it's, oh, I don't know. It's so oh, awful. Yeah, it is awful. And we want to wish our condolences to, as if it really matters, I guess, but it, I mean, I know. You know, I don't want to say thoughts and prayers or anything like that because I, I, I do really feel like there needs to be action. But you know, condolences to the families and everybody impacted yeah. this. Um, and just love to educators in general. I just think it was another. I'm not even in a building anymore, and I could not the day after. I could not function, and I just felt so agitated and like I wanted to crawl out of my skin, and I couldn't figure out why. And I called my older sister. And as soon as I heard her voice, I just burst into tears. And she was like, what's going on? And finally, I was like, this thing in Texas, it hurts me. You know, so just love to all the educators because it really does. I mean, we're hundreds of miles away, but still it impacts us to think of having to manage that. Yes. Well, um, there are lots of things going on in the world. And one of the things that we said we might wanna discuss was feedback because ASCD educational leadership had a whole edition, I guess, or- um, Their magazine. Uh, yeah, right, their journal. They have yeah. a whole- a journal on feedback. Um, on feedback or teacher evaluation? Because those are two different things. Well, let's, <laughs> on feedback, right? But I, I think teacher evaluation, you have to talk about feedback if you're going to talk about teacher evaluation. Because the intention of teacher evaluation, at least this is what people say, is to provide feedback to teachers, feedback that they don't really get. I don't think it is. What is it then? What is the purpose of teacher evaluation? To evaluate teachers. But it doesn't really. Like 98% of teachers are rated highly effective. So why even bother to have it? Yes, but that is user error. Okay, user error. Right, but so most teacher evaluation processes, they don't have... And like, if you look at best practices for feedback, the teacher evaluation doesn't have that. To get an emailed report spit out to you about whether or not you got a one, two, three, or four on 72 criteria, that's not feedback. That's an evaluation. That's a test score. Sure. But I think that some districts are doing it a little bit wiser and a little bit better now. So like, for example, a principal's visits to classrooms can count towards the overall. So I might not be looking for every single thing every single time. I'm looking for maybe one specific area or maybe as a school we're working on one specific area. And so I'm going in and really focusing Uber on that. Of course, I have to mark everything every single year. I guess exactly. it depends on what state you're in because it's probably different with every state. In Utah, you have to mark every single category single year and every teacher must be evaluated every year so I don't know I mean I think if we're going to do it 
So I'm, I'm all for getting rid of teacher evaluation and just doing regular visits, right? Like I just get to go to classrooms. In fact, I should be in every single classroom every week. Principals, you should be in every classroom every week. So I go into classrooms. I um, perhaps am looking for something specific. Maybe we're working on academic discourse or maybe we're working on engagement. So I provide feedback or I don't think it's realistic to expect principals to keep track of everybody's specific goals and to provide feedback around that. But as a school, we have a goal, right? And I provide some feedback relative to that goal. And that just goes on throughout the year. And then we get rid of teacher evaluation. If we can't get rid of teacher evaluation, then we should be doing it better. We should be doing it right. right. And does that include, does that mean we need to be getting rid of more teachers maybe? Well, I don't think we need to get rid of more teachers because we have no one to replace them with, right? I mean, we're in a teacher shortage anyway. So I do believe that we are, it's a stronger business model to coach up okay. than, than to like have a revolving door of teachers coming out, you know, being pushed out because they're not effective. I mean, again, they're not effective. Why are they certified teachers to begin with? So then you have to go into teacher prep programs. Like that's a whole nother podcast, right? Because why are why do our teachers come to us so ill-prepared, especially schools who work in like concentrated urban areas or unique rural areas, you know, or on reservation schools. Right. Like there are particular settings across the state and the nation where teachers need a different skill set than just in like a maybe suburban, primarily white, middle-class setting. Right. But back to evaluation. I, I mean, there is very little research to show that teacher evaluations actually change teacher practice. So it's the observation and feedback coaching cycles that actually change teacher practice but the time required for an authentic observation and feedback coaching cycle is in direct com competition with the time required for the teacher evaluation observations. Right. One is mandatory, one is best practice. So I think, yeah, if we're gonna keep teacher evaluations, then they need to be done honestly and they need to somehow correlate to student learning growth and achievement. Right, that's really a touchy subject because you know, I, I've often asked that question, how can we possibly have 98% of our teachers? That's a nationwide statistic, uh, at, at effective or highly effective, yeah. and have not even half of our kids reading on grade level. Like, how yeah. is that possible? Right. And then all sorts of arguments like, well, you've got lots of societal factors, you've got poverty, you've got, you know, housing segregation. Another podcast that I'm listening to now is talking about housing segregation and how that filters into school segregation. Yeah. So, yeah, I, if you bring that up, then, I mean, we can't even count our end of level scores towards teacher evaluation in Utah. Right. Well, yeah, and that's sticky too, because some teachers have a harder job than other teachers. 
and some students have a harder job than other students, right? Um, when I work with principals, and I know that you're familiar with this, but the Hersey Blanchard situational leadership model has those four quadrants, right? Based on skill and will. So I work with teachers to kind of sort their teachers in each quadrant based on their level of skill and level of will. Well, if you just define skill, what I've realized now after doing this with teachers for five years, or sorry, with principals for five years, is that I need to help principals, we all as school leaders need to define skill and will more clearly. Because I did this with a group um, in, of New Mexico school leaders. And I just said, skill is based on the job of teaching the core in a way that students can learn the core. And I just said, you know, that's the basic job of a teacher is they teach the core standards in a way that students can master the core standards. And then I spent more time talking about will. So what is will, right? It's the, it's the commitment, um, but commitment to what? And so that's where I think really our core values come out, like as a leader and as a school community, what are our core values that drive our effort of improvement? So I was working with this group and this uh, principal came over or asked me to come over and um, she said, you know, I just did this and I put most of my teachers in the fourth quadrant, which is high skill, high will. And she said, but I know from progress monitoring that at the end of the school year, my kids will be struggling. And so, and this is what I loved. She said, what am I missing? Like, what am I not thinking about when I'm looking at my teacher's skill and will and I'm trying to correlate them to student learning outcomes? So it was, I, I really commend her because she was, you know, taking responsibility of it. So and then that, huh? So what is she missing? So then I, we talked as a whole group about, okay, so then maybe that definition of skill isn't good enough. Like basic strong tier one instruction isn't good enough. So maybe based on our student um, body and our student learning needs, we have to define skill as deeper. Like I can deliver core instruction to English learners and have it be accessible to them. Or I can differentiate tier one instruction so my English learners and my students with disabilities both can access core one core instruction. So really like the, dem the honest demand that we have on teachers now, like we have to really name what that is. And so no longer is the basic skill of teaching and learning required, it has to be more nuanced, more rigorous. So, well, yeah. I don't think that's gonna attract very many more candidates to teaching. I know, <laughs> but it's our reality. Right, it is. So, so there has to be some way to correlate teacher evaluations with, and I don't mean causation, but correlation. There has to become some consideration of growth and achievement. Right, of course. And when I say, you know, that we have 98% of teachers who are effective or highly effective and we only have 50% yeah. students proficient, of course, we, you know, you can't 
get a child proficient necessarily in one year if they're several years behind, but right. you should be able to see significant progress. Talk about the thing that you're doing with one of your districts where you, the instructional rounds, because that would be a better model, right? Than teacher evaluation. No, instructional rounds is to measure your systems in the building. It doesn't, it's not a, it's not about giving teachers feedback. Oh, it isn't. No. So instructional rounds comes out of Harvard and they have this really great book called Instructional Rounds in Education, a Network Approach to Improving Teaching and Learning. Okay. So it is not instructional rounds to give teachers feedback. It's instructional rounds to see how your systems are supporting teachers to do their best work. Ah, okay. Right. So you go in and you, you observe a snapshot of every classroom in the building and then come back and debrief and identify the evidence of learning specific to a problem of practice. And then you say, okay, so given your current systems, PLC, professional or professional development, coaching and mentoring, your PBIS system, your RTI system, your MTSS system, like whatever, whatever name you're using for your systems in the building, are your systems working in a way that teachers can do their best teaching and students can do their best learning? And if not, then you have to adjust your systems. I see. So it's not about fixing teachers. It's about fixing systems that are meant to support teachers. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, it seems like that would have to be an important component of any teacher evaluation or teacher feedback is making sure that the systems aren't getting in the way of the work that's supposed to happen. Right. I mean, a great analogy is like, Working from the positive assumption that teachers are doing the best that they can do given the conditions they're working in, right? Which those conditions have become more challenging in the past three years because of COVID. But the idea is the school system, so the organizational systems, like those I just named, is, are, are the food. It's like the meals that we're giving teachers, right? So those systems feed teachers. Well, if the food or meals that we're giving teachers are rotten or are too small or are processed, right? We all we're feeding them are Twinkies. Then the analogy goes that the teacher will be malnourished, right? So the teacher's anemic or the teacher's weak or the teacher's often sick because the systems are feeding them inappropriately. So we need to make our sure our systems are robust and working functionally and effectively so that we are providing healthy nutrients to our teachers so that they are in a healthy workspace to do their best teaching. Right. So it feels like we should throw out teacher evaluation when we get systems better functioning. Teacher evaluation. You know, one of the systems that is that is one system right yeah and because it's mandatory a lot of principals will prioritize that dysfunctional system over a strong observation and feedback cycle which is a different kind of system which actually helps improve teacher practice 
but shouldn't those two things be combined? This is where I'm getting tripped up. Like we shouldn't have a separate teacher evaluation system from our observation and feedback system. Those should be married, those should be one. Ideally, yes, but because of the gigantic bureaucratic constructs of teacher evaluation, it's hard to make them one. It's the polarity, right? Yeah, Why? because like you said, even if I go in and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to look for, you know, a, an environment conducive to learning. Like that's one of the standards that is on the Utah teacher standards, right? Okay. So I might go in and look for that, but that has nothing to do with my problem of practice. My problem of practice is about um, teachers increasing student discourse using sentence frames but I'm busy looking at a conducive environment for learning. But then I'm actually still looking at all 72 indicators of the teaching standard. So I'm actually not looking at anything. I'm just filling a bunch of boxes in the online, online software program that I have to com com complete. Right. So ideally, yeah, they'd be, they'd be one and the same, but make that happen, right? That's at the legislative level, at the state school board level. Well, and part of it is about, you know, part of the creation of the, the teacher evaluation, which I think creates such a problematic system is its intent. The intent is to, um, I think punish teachers, right? It's some of these systems are created by people who are not favorable to public education or public educators. So if we can show that teachers are ineffective through this system, then you know maybe we can have more charter schools or we can have vouchers for, public, yeah. for private schools. So that's kind of, I think, an intent, a hidden agenda. Yeah. However, it's not working. Yoo-hoo, it's not working because 98% of teachers are marked effective or highly effective. And I think part of that is kind of a reaction to what's perceived as the intent of teacher evaluation, which is a gotcha on teachers. And so then we have administrators trying to compensate by just marking everybody, oh, you're fine, which isn't really helping either. Yeah, I don't, I just don't get that. You know, I always tell my principals that I work with, like, if we believe in the RTI model, then, you know, 80% of our people with teachers, they're thinking of students with principals, we're thinking of teachers, 80% of our teachers should be able to function appropriately with the supports we have in place. 15% of our teachers, if we're going off of the RTI model, will need more intensive support and more time of support. And then 5% of our teachers might be in the wrong place or they might really need some extensive support. So I just don't get how, I, I mean, I never, I don't get how principals are marking everybody highly effective. Yeah, well, because it's because it's a meaningless system currently. Yeah. Well, I'm curious to hear what people think about this. I know teachers feel very anxious about teacher evaluation, like because there's well, and sometimes people's 
people's salary is dependent upon it, right? Or raises are dependent upon it sometimes, depending on where you are. Like if you're not marked an effective or highly effective, you can't move up on the salary schedule. So putting- Is that true? Yes, yes, that's in, I think that's in Utah statute now, but it's probably in other places too. I'm sure it's in Texas. I've never known of that to happen. Well, yeah, because everybody gets marked as effective or highly effective. (laughs) And you don't want okay. to do anything other than that because, so I can't really use as a, as a principal, I can't really use the teacher evaluation as quality feedback because if I give somebody a low rating in an area, which you would assume, you know, we're all going to be low in particular areas, yeah. then they might not advance on the salary schedule and that impacts somebody's livelihood. So, yeah. It's all messed up. Well, it's been fun chatting with you about this topic, though. I know, it's kind of depressing. Happy so, Friday. <laughs> yeah. What's our solution, then? What's your solution? If you, had, if you had a magic wand, a teacher evaluation, a magic wand, what would you do with it? I don't do, I don't play that game, Jim. Okay. If I had a magic wand... Until teacher evaluation gets fixed, I would have principals do observation and feedback coaching cycles. And I think that they can do both. Okay. So you would be teaching them how to manage their time so that they could do both. Yeah. I think that's good. That's, that's the yes and no. That is. I was just going to say that. That is a true middle. Middle messy. Yes. Yep. Good job. Well, it's been fun chatting with you and um, until next time. Yeah. Who's on our, who's on our docket at the share? Cause I'm excited about, you have two set okay. up. Yeah. So we have uh, Davina Smith that we're going to be talking to. And um, I don't know if you know, but there have been, there has been a report that came out of the department of the interior. You might not know this because you don't watch the news. I know. Um, but uh it has basically said that there are all of these indigenous boarding schools or there existed these indigenous boarding schools, some up until the 1960s mm-hmm. um, around the country that were really meant to were created as a means of um, assimilating sure. indigenous youth and just the cruelty that went on in lots of these places. And then the associated burial grounds, like there are kids that were killed and buried. And I think they only really have, Oh, I'm sure scratch the surface. Yeah. So Davina Smith actually spent time in one of these boarding schools. She's a um, she's running for the legislature, which is great. But we're going to talk to Here her in Utah. Yes. So okay. um, exciting to be able to talk to her a little bit about just her experiences and also, you know, the state of education for indigenous yeah. people now. And then um, we're going to be talking to, one second, I have to look up the name. It is um, Carissa McCray, who is an author. She's written about equity. And so we're gonna be talking to her about our brand new book. And about equity in our schools, which, you know, we both are passionate about, so. Excellent. And she's not local, right? She's not. Do Do you know where she's from? No, I'll have to ask her. Back east, though. You said east. Back east somewhere. Yeah. Florida. Okay.
Awesome.